Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought into sharp relief the physical and psychological pressures faced by those working to save the lives of our sickest patients. Staff in intensive care found themselves right at the heart of this crisis. I wanted to find out what this was like and how this experience evolved over the course of the pandemic and what the lasting impact might be. I spoke with Dr. Rosie Barrower, who is a consultant in critical care medicine and anaesthesia at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. In this episode, we reflect on what it's been like for the doctors and nurses in intensive care and the impact of moral injury, particularly in relation to end of life care. We also talk about gender bias in medicine and how this affects both men and women. But I started by asking Rosie what the pandemic had been like for her. It's been, I think for everybody, the most extraordinary time in our lives because especially for those working in healthcare, it's not just been incredibly challenging um, at work, but it's been incredibly challenging um, outside of work too. And I think it's the first time I've had that dual experience because normally you have perhaps challenging things going on at home and you can go into work and count on the the certainty and the routine being a grounding thing or you have challenging things going on at work and you can count on things at home being routine and grounding but this was the first time I think we all felt that we were just on absolute shifting sands and lost all sense of certainty um, both in terms of how things were going to be at home how things were going to be at work um, and and I mean, I very much hope it will be the only time in my professional life that that I was made to feel like this. But when I look back to from sort of early March to probably end May of the first wave in um, 2020, um, that feeling of just being in some kind of parallel universe when you'd be driving to work and the streets would be empty like it was like it was driving to work on Christmas Day or something. Um, and the hospital would feel empty because there were no visitors and no patients coming in for outpatient clinic. And then you'd get into the ICU and it would all be polypropylene tunnels and everyone walking around um, dressed like spacemen and uh, not knowing when you were ever going to see your, your extended family again. And uh, it just absolutely extraordinary. And, and, and that was the, the, the peak um, certainly in terms of our clinical activity, but also in terms of that uncertainty. But it's now kind of uh, filtered into just this ongoing uncertainty that I think we're all feeling, the inability to make plans, either professional or personal. And just that feeling of, you know, you never know what the future brings, but before you could always at least think, oh, well, you know, in two years, we might do this, we might go there, I might try this, I might not. And that feeling that you can't actually plan for anything, really, because because if you do, 
COVID's going to throw up another another new variant or something else is going to happen and sort of losing that certainty is something that I think I'm still coming to terms with and I sometimes think back to to the before times and it feels like a di- literally a different world um, and so it, it's been extraordinary and when you sit and think about it um, it's I mean what time to be alive yeah, and I can I can relate to so much of that. I guess my experience is very different to yours, not being, you know, working in a hospital. But those, that kind of, just the weirdness of, I was thinking the other day of of how, um, because I was working for the NHS, I used to go and do the weekly shop because I could get to the front of the queue, which was round the block, and our car died because we weren't driving anywhere, so I'd have to go and do the weekly shop by myself. And walking around with masks, you know, that that experience of just not being able to really read people very well and kind of, um, yeah, the, the sort of the weirdness of human interaction that, you know, is, is still, there's still so many awkward moments. We're still really navigating that, aren't we, about, um, you know, what's okay and what's not okay and how to... Um, respect those things and I think there's something about as you said you know we're thinking about the before times I like that phrase but there's a sense of actually I think for me that we're not going to be ever going back to that you know that that we're kind of going through something rather than being able to go back and the longer it goes on the longer you know the more changes in in life you know thinking back to my life is completely different two years ago than it is now you know people have died people have been born um so much has changed so yeah it is it is so strange to look back and yeah reflect on and how long it's been because it's exactly (laughs) that isn't it you mentioning um going to the shops and that that feeling of going to the shops and the pasta aisle would be completely empty and the fresh fruit and veg would be all gone and never having experienced that kind of feeling of panic of you know how am I going to how am I going to feed my child and it sounds you know we're, we're so kind of privileged in the west aren't we that that's not generally something we have to think about but but it was exactly that that feeling of, of you were living through this time of crisis that I've had the great privilege of never having to to have thought about before that that fact that our lives as you know my life is not particularly exciting it was very very pedestrian I like it that way but suddenly not having that certainty of being able to go to the shop and buy food enough to feed your family it's just yeah and what's your sense been Rosie of the kind of mental health impact of these last couple of years on on the staff that you work with and your colleagues so again to sort of take it in phases the first wave um for me personally um that run-up was really challenging because you know it's almost it, it looks like you're thinking about a movie or something but you know on the bbc website seeing these stories of this virus emerging from wuhan and then oh it's in europe and then seeing the photographs and the footage from north italy of all of the ICUs just being full of these patients. And, and because North Italy is very similar to the UK in the way it delivers healthcare, seeing how it was completely overwhelmed and then it's spreading through mainland Europe and then getting, and just this, this sense of inevitability when we had never before had to, to, to deal with a pandemic in the same way, even in uh, the, the swine flu pandemic of 2009, I think it was, 
it, it, things were difficult for a winter, but the the social um, impact of that was you know pretty minimal. Um, and so for us as a as a ICU, I work in a hospital that's a major cancer centre, and so we have this this difficulty of not wanting to compromise the care of patients who needed their cancer treatment, but also knowing that we needed to get set up for this for this virus that was coming, and yet feeling the sense that, that maybe it won't maybe it won't get here because because it never has before. And for our nursing staff, particularly, um, we knew that we had to increase the numbers of staff dramatically in a really short space of time. And lots of nurses came from theatre, from theatre recovery, from research, um, from uh, specialist nurse roles, from, from having previously been critical care nurses, being thrown into this environment that was uh, physically austere. You're wearing this PPE, which impeded your communication. It was hot. Um, it was loud because you have these, these masks and these thick plastic visors we had at that time, which meant you had to shout all the time. You were dealing with patients who were really sick because in the first wave, we had no effective treatments for COVID other than supportive treatment. And the patients that were with us were so, so sick. Um, and I think the biggest thing, uh, obviously for nurses who weren't used to ICU, you know, dealing with the with the, the unstable physiology of these patients and the equipment and the drugs was, was challenging. Our nursing staff were having to support um, nursing staff beside them so that kind of doubled their cognitive cognitive load and I guess the emotional burden of having people who are needing a lot of support I mean our nurses are fantastic and so they would never sort of withhold that support from people but that is an, an additional um, burden for them and I think the biggest thing was you know a lot of people died and in ICU uh, we are used to one in five of our patients not surviving and I genuinely think that giving people a good death is one of the best things that we do as intensive care staff, that when patients survive, that's obviously, you know, a, a great thing. But acknowledging that somebody is dying, allowing uh, them, if they are awake, um, and their families to prepare for that and supporting them and their families through that death um, is such a, a, a rewarding um, thing to do but also something that I think um, gives us huge amounts of emotional and psychological um, well-being, I guess, knowing that we've that we've really supported that patient and that family. And instead, we were completely withholding families from their patients, from their from their loved ones, I should say. Um, and so they were allowed one hour visit uh, when we had acknowledge that this person was dying you know they had to keep their gloves on they had to keep their mask on so they couldn't touch their loved one they couldn't kiss them goodbye and after that hour was up we had to tell them to leave and then that person would have their life-sustaining treatment withdrawn and they would die alone surrounded by strangers and I mean that was for me having to phone these families um day after day saying I'm really sorry nothing's working they're getting sicker I'm really sorry they're getting sicker I'm really sorry you need to come in I, I, they're dying um, was terrible and just one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to do. Because remember in the first wave, these families were completely alone. Very often it was um, almost all of the patients who died in the first wave were men, so they, they, their wives were at home. There, were, there was no bubbles at that stage, so they were completely isolated, just getting this phone call from the hospital every day. And then they would go home to being completely alone again. Um, and our nursing staff could see that and they could see just how distraught these, these people were when they were coming in. And I think for them, that, that act of care um, around the process of dying in ICU um, was completely, I mean, just, just 
absent because you just couldn't do what you would want to do, which is to really spend time with these families and allow them to spend time with their with their loved one. And I think that um, was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and for our staff who were not ICU staff, who'd maybe never looked after a dying patient um, any time recently to have to be exposed to the process of dying in such an abnormal way, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine how they processed that. Um, and it's funny, um, sometimes I'll be in, in theatre recovery during my sort of days in, in, in anaesthetics and there'll be a recovery nurse who I, who I remember looking after a particular patient when he or she was sort of sent down to ICU and we'll, we'll talk about that patient. Do you remember that night, that man? And we did this. And do you remember when the family came in? And so we've got that kind of collective memory. And I wonder if actually just sharing those together helps a little bit because, you know, I think those memories, particularly the first wave, um, it was a difficult time. Um, and, and then we sort of moved past the first wave onto that period of uncertainty of are we getting a second wave? What's it going to look like? Is everything going to shut down again? Um, you know, people's who's, 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 partners you know weren't working you know financially how are they going to manage and there was all that uncertainty and then there was that kind of I mean I like to think it's a minority but that kind of tide of, of public opinion turning from the the clapping every Thursday to rallies in Trafalgar Square <laughs> calling for us to be hanged like the Nuremberg trials and our nursing staff found that really really difficult sort of saying you know they go on Facebook and people saying that you know the NHS staff are just being lazy and all these people are dying of heart disease and cancer and and and, and they just don't care and, and and again that that was the next I think really difficult thing um because what we do we do with I like to think great sincerity and with the the most effort we can give. And I mean, I guess this is something that you know a lot about as healthcare workers, our professional identity and our personal identities and sense of achievement um, and sense of being a good person are so closely enmeshed to be uh, told that you're a bad person for doing what you thought was the right thing in circumstances where you felt you had very, very little choice um, in the face of huge uncertainty that was really really hard it's hard to hear you describe these experiences um can only imagine what it must be like for people and I guess part of what what um I'm hearing is a sense of how you know your work and and your your colleagues work is so values driven you know really driven you know all that commitment and hard work is driven by um a real commitment to your, the care of your patients and to providing compassionate um dignified death and a sense of duty and responsibility and a public service um and the sacrifices that that you've made in you know your careers to in your lives to deliver that and the sacrifices you made during the pandemic especially and for that to be become a source of, of vilification and anger and hate is yeah must be so painful especially at a phase when you're probably exhausted you know that there hasn't been time to recover physically or emotionally um to, to then feel that you're kind of going against the tide of 
you haven't got that public support from you know a loud minority of of society and it's funny because I don't remember I mean there's always people who like to criticize the NHS but I don't remember it being so organized before um and you know when you hear incredibly experienced incredibly kind caring lovely funny um hard-working uh ICU nurses saying I just don't think I can do this another time you just think well you know who is uh, because you, you, I see nurses don't grow on trees, and you know to, to have somebody with that unique combination of of skill and compassion, and knowledge, and sense of humour, and you know commitment to teamwork, all that kind of thing. It's it's when I think about our team in ICU, um, you know we've talked about a lot of things that are quite challenging that we find really hard, but there was also a huge amount of personal. Um, reward, um, enjoyment and happiness from that camaraderie that we had. And, you know, I think back to sort of, you know, team wave one and some of our, our doctors in training who who came, who had been in um, specialties and been what we call redeployed, which sounds very military, but, you know, sent back to ICU to, to help. Some of whom are not anaesthetists or intensive care trainees, one of whom was a GP in training, one of whom was taking some time out. And they were just fantastic. You know, they didn't know what they were going into. At that point, we didn't really know how deadly COVID really was. You know, we'd heard of healthcare workers in Italy and, and China dying. You know, would that be us as well? And they just flung themselves into it with not just... Um, enthusiasm but genuine sort of they, they put their best work faces on every day um and i i can remember some genuinely like incredibly happy times sort of in in the, in our work environment just just getting on with it um and so although the, some of the times were the hardest i think i will ever face um i have so many incredible memories of our team um, in that in that first wave and and going on from that just in in that sense of, of teamwork and um, camaraderie that we had and where are things now Rosie we always know winter is a busy time but but there's a sense now when you have covid patients the really strange thing about covid is if somebody's coming in just with a what's the ordinary pneumonia they normally you know they're very distressed they're often very confused they need to go off to sleep and go in a ventilator right away. Um, and, and that is what we do for them. But COVID is a really strange disease. People can have the lowest oxygen readings you see. They can be on 100% oxygen through a mask or sort of a, a nasal oxygen delivery device, and they will feel absolutely fine. And they'll be chatting away to you and watching TV programs on their iPad. And I mean, that's obviously very nice that they don't feel distressed until they deteriorate to the point where they need to go in a ventilator. But the difficult thing is you kind of get to know them a bit. Um, and often now when people come to ICU, they know what that means and they're so scared and they share with you how scared they are. And then if they deteriorate and you say to them, look, I think things aren't working here. We need to go to our next stage of treatment and and sort of get you on a ventilator and they're making those phone calls to their families to tell them that's what's happening and again there's that, that kind of feeling of here we go again here's another poor person who is going to to suffer the discomfort and uh you know the harms that icu treatment can can deliver to people and when you think that you know some of that potentially is preventable and you know that, that the political management of covid is like a whole other podcast but there's that kind of real sense of I guess emotional exhaustion of why is another person having to go through this why is another family having to go through this um 
because some people will always be susceptible to COVID, but other people you think maybe would not be here if things had been done differently. And that's quite hard. How does it show up that the the kind of, you know, the things that people have experienced, the strains of those last couple of years, what do you see amongst your colleagues on a day-to-day basis? It's funny, isn't it? Because burnout, um, if somebody's crying in the toilets, they're having a terrible day, it's almost quite a an easy thing to respond to because you can give them a hug and you can say, oh, I'm sorry, you feel really terrible and, um, you know, we'll get through this. Do you want a cup of tea and all those things? It's a very straightforward situation to deal with in many ways because their their distress is, is openly manifested in a way that is socially um, straightforward to to provide a response to. But burnout can often just be people, you ask them to do something and, and they just, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, or, um, you know, covers needed for another shift. No, I'm, I'm not around to do that. And and maybe just being more short-tempered than usual and and just that sense of disengagement. Um, and I, I can't say I've seen that in my team directly, but I know that there's a lot of it around. And I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because it's, it's not so easy to comfort somebody who's being very disagreeable and inverted commas, unhelpful. They're not, they're really struggling. But you can't really go and hug somebody when they've told you for the 25th time they're not going to do something that they really should be doing. And so I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because we're all feeling really tired. And then if somebody's symptoms of burnout are manifested as that kind of disengagement, how do, how do you how do you meaningfully engage with that person um, rather than just raise your eyebrows and go, oh, right, I'll just do it myself. You know, I think that's the real challenge because I'm sure there's so many people that are manifesting their burnout in that kind of way, in a way that you can't put your arm around them and say, don't worry, can I make you a cup of tea? I mean, I do remember I was clinical lead of my department um, during the first wave of COVID. And in that kind of period and in early March to late March when we were still preparing, I'd be walking through the hospital and people from doctors from other specialties would come up and say right so you're expanding the ICU and that means that I can't do this and I can't do that and oh, apparently I have to get fitted for a mask and I just don't have time in my shirt and offloading all this stuff and I know that it was their way of saying this is really horrible I'm really scared about this um, I don't know what's happening I'm a kind of person who thrives on on being in control and I'm losing all sense of control and this is really tough for me and I don't know that I'm always better at being <laughs> the, the, the better person, but even though I knew that that was what they were really saying, I was still like, why are you, do you not think I've got stuff I'm thinking about too? Do you not think my plate's pretty overrunning with COVID related crap right now? And do you not think I'm worried about my family? And do you not think this is, so it's that kind of thing, isn't it? That, you know, when people are manifesting their stress in a way that can seem quite abrupt and can seem quite confrontational, um, I sometimes find it really, really hard to dig deep enough to uh, to confront that, not, not in kind, but with kindness, um, because you just think, come on, grow up. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's not helpful, but I think that's that was my response, my internal response a lot of the time when I'd be nodding and be like, mm, yeah, that must be really terrible for you. Yeah, I'm really sorry. That's it. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's something about your our own capacity for that, our own capacity to kind of absorb and hear and contain other people's distress when we're really full up. We haven't got that, any spare to, to kind of give other people. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether... 
and, and particularly looking back over these years, whether there have been, um, you know, spaces or you've been able to carve out ways to pause and think and talk together in order to kind of process some of this stuff and, and create some of that capacity. So in our hospital, um, you know, as we've already talked about, there have been some good things that have come out of COVID. And one thing has been in the first wave, uh, we were given the opportunity to hold, um, they weren't counselling sessions. They were, I guess, if you were to call them anything, a sort of listening circles where one of our liaison psychiatrists would take any members of staff that were free, so from any uh, discipline, six or seven people at a time, and just talk about how we were feeling. And what was really interesting is that one of our one of our uh, doctors in training who is with us, who is an incredibly insightful person, um, who is now uh, a GP, and I think his patients will be just extremely lucky because he's 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 just so emotionally attuned in a really smart way. And um, he went to one of these listening circles. I think it was him, another uh, doctor in training, and about four or five nursing staff. And he said a lot of the things they talked about um, were things that we actually talked about in our doctor's room. Um, just when we were writing up notes or or just doing the business of the day. But I think for our nursing staff, the the way that they work tends to be a little bit more isolated because they're with their patient in the bed space um, and they don't have those those points in the day like we do where we are still in work mode, but we're all sitting in a room and can discuss together. Because for them, the time that they're in a room and discussing things together, it's the coffee room. And I think there is this implicit expectation that you're not going to bring heavy conversations into the coffee room, unless it's maybe just you and one other or two other people, because it's there as a period of, of rest, literal refreshment, but maybe also kind of mental and emotional refreshment. And to come in and be like, oh, this has been terrible. I'm so upset maybe is just, again, uh, the, imp the implied uh, rules of the coffee room are you don't take things in there because that is a break room. So I thought that was really interesting because I'd never really thought of that before, that we as uh, the, the medical and the, the critical care practitioner staff, we do have that space, the physical space of our room that's still a workplace where, you know, a workspace where we feel we can have those conversations. Um, and I guess... Again, some of that is just the culture of, of the of the ICU where I'm you know, so pleased to work that there isn't that, I, I guess you could call it machismo, um, that whole kind of, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, oh, machines, I love machines, and yeah, sick people, yeah, they're just people to stick big lines in. You know, there is this feeling of that was really horrible. I've had this conversation with the family. They were so upset. I found it really hard. I can see these patients are getting sicker. It's really really difficult for me to deal with that and I, I think that that culture of openness is something we've always had and it's it, it sort of bore fruit during COVID when it meant that we we could have that space where we could talk about that stuff and, and not feel the need to have this veneer of invulnerability because some places I think that is the expectation that if you show emotion that is construed as weakness rather than just another part of of what makes you uh, human um, and I don't know how I would have managed if I worked in a place like that. And that's a really helpful insight, as you said, about how other professional groups might not have that, um, those opportunities or, or those kind of carved out spaces and times to have those conversations. Do you have a sense, again, we're not sure where we are in the story, but um, 
of what the longer term impact might be for ICU staff in particular around in terms of mental health? I don't know, but I suspect you do. Um, the impact of long term uncertainty on people in the workplace. Uh, and I think that is a really big aspect of uh, of mental health and, and well-being. Uh, although we as NHS staff, we know and we are very grateful for the fact that we have had a consistent income throughout all of this. A lot of people um, in, in two-person uh, domestic units, um, you know, have been facing economic uncertainty, which may be ongoing Um as I've already sort of alluded to, that sense of weariness when you're looking after these patients who are awake and very conscious of the fact that they are in ICU with COVID and that this could end in their 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 death and the psychological distress that causes them and and the psychological distress it then causes you as a, a carer seeing these people really suffer because of that. And I guess that sense of there being no end in sight and just new variants coming out all the time and and so I, I think if I were to say there's one thing that's potentially going to be the root cause of of mental health issues it's going to be that uncertainty because for the first wave we genuinely thought it was going to be over by summertime and it was just right all hands on deck let's go team let's do this because um, you anyone can do that for three months you know, and so in terms of a major incident, if you had to deal with this this major incident that lasted twelve weeks, we, we you can do that. But it's now been a major incident that's lasted twenty one months, uh, and and that's the difference. That like when's this major incident going to stop? And I think it's the uncertainty, um, the uncertainty and the emotional burden of looking after these people and cutting them off from their families. Um, because again, uh, you know doctors do something that is a, a caring job but I think um, you know I haven't trained in nursing so I can't speak directly from this perspective but the act of care uh, seems to be so fundamental to the practice of nursing um, and I guess then is so fundamental to a, a nurse's professional identity uh, and sort of self-identity to, to have the, those acts of care taken away or, or modified in such a, a potentially sort of devastating way uh, again Every death, I think it's just another another little death for that for that nurse, for them personally. So I guess there's two things there. One is about exhaustion in terms of just the kind of emotional and physical exhaustion that not only comes with this extended period of of intense work, but also of managing that uncertainty, the kind of cognitive load that 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 you know that carries both in the real, you know, it's, it's hard now even to plan for the weekend because we don't know, you know, what's happening. Never mind, you know, planning breaks or, you know, personal development or, you know, all those things that would be nurturing and nourishing and that might, um, you know, keep us going during normal times. We kind of have a rhythm, don't we, to our lives and our professional, um, yeah, professional and personal lives. And, and that's just so disrupted now we haven't got that sense of rhythm but the second thing you mentioned there which sounds I guess we, we might be talking about moral injury there that sense of being in a position where we find ourselves either acting um, or being complicit in acts that really contradict our moral code like you know denying families access to each other when someone's dying um, 
really painful and, and to be to not have a choice but to be enacting those policies is so hard and what i find really interesting again going back to to the way that and this is huge generalizations obviously but that medical staff and nursing staff may view things back in the first wave we didn't have any specific effective treatments for covid now we have many and i was speaking to um, speaking of uncertainty, I had to sort of short notice cover um, a bit of a day on Sunday because one of our colleagues had to self-isolate. And when I was handing over on the phone to another colleague, he was saying, you know, there's a new drug, Ronaprev, that has just uh, become available, which a patient had received and they were now doing quite well. Whether it was down to this or not, we, you never know 100%. But, but just saying, oh, isn't it a great thing that we, we can give now? And it's almost like for us, now if a patient does not survive, at least we've given dexamethasone and we've given uh, tocilizumab and we've given uh, Ronaprim if they need it and we've done all these things. And so we, we have that sense of we gave all the treatment we could give, but unfortunately they did not survive. And so for us as doctors, I wonder if actually that sense of, 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 of hurt, of feeling that, you know, I, I have all this training and I have all these machines and yet there's nothing I, I feel that I can really do to make you better. That is, that has, that's moved on a little bit since the first wave. And I, I wonder if that, if that means that we will feel less moral injury, but for the nursing staff, I think that separation, particularly um, of the deteriorating patient and looking after patients who are awake, but absolutely terrified, um, that's still there and I, I don't know that the advent of new treatments necessarily because of their slightly differing professional role would have the same impact so so who knows I think it'd be a fascinating piece of research to do um, but yeah for, for us as doctors I think feeling that we had nothing to give other than supportive care was really hard because that's just anathema to us as people who are knowers and who are doers um, but now we feel that we do know and we can do. And so that's taken a little bit of that away. Kind of stepping back a little bit away from the pandemic, um, I know that you have particular interest in um, gender disparity and gender bias in medicine. Um, and I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that, about your your interest there and, and particularly thinking about... Um, the impact that that that, that can have mm -hmm. on on medics in the workplace so i've always sort of had a an awareness um of the role of 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 girls and women in society and how we're 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 conditioned from a very early age to expect to behave in a certain way like for instance um you know my brother and i were very close in age but i would always be the one called down for my homework to come and set the table for dinner not him because his work was somehow seen as slightly more important and slightly less interruptible um and again at medical school at edinburgh which is where i trained we were the first year i think to be slightly majority female something like 52 percent, but still um and that that trend has continued uh in the 27 years since I started um, at medical school and, and now overall in the UK it's about 55% to 57% female it sort of varies on year on year and yet in certain specialties for example intensive care medicine which is where I practice we're still only 20% female at consultant level and in medicine we see these twin phenomena um, horizontal segregation which is where you see uh, men and women uh, sort of clustered into certain specialties 
So, for example, surgery, intensive care medicine is still predominantly male, and things like GP are predominantly female. And some of that, of course, is personal choice. But a lot of that is that men and women are directed into certain specialties based purely on their gender rather than on their on their ability, on their preference. And there's a whole heap of reasons for that. And then we see vertical segregation where women are underrepresented in leadership positions. And again, of course, some of that might be personal choice. You know, I would not want to go into higher hospital management. That's not where my interests lie. So I'm not, you know, complaining that I haven't been given the opportunities. I haven't sought them out. Um, but a lot of that has to do with how we view women as leaders, because leadership in Western and I think pretty much all societies is strongly coded with behaviours that we like to see in men authoritativeness, dominance, confidence. Um, when they're absent in men, we view men very negatively for not being authoritative, for not being dominant, for not being confident. But if those are seen in women, then we are viewed very, very negatively. They just are completely incongruent to the female gender role. Um, and we don't like authoritative women. And so we don't like to see women in leadership positions and women in leadership positions find themselves generally being viewed quite negatively as a result or they have to style themselves as being very benevolent and very caring. And, you know, why is Angela Merkel, who's one of those powerful women in the world, called Muti, um, which I believe is German for mother. I could be wrong on the regular languages. But, you know, why does she have to be styled as mother? Because mother isn't just female parent. Mother is all about um, caring and um, being warm and making sure other people's needs are met before your own and all those kinds of things. So, so gender bias in medicine can be seen in the numbers of, of women in these kind of, uh, in certain specialties and in the, the numbers of women in leadership positions. And just in your everyday experiences as well as a woman in medicine, um, you will, I, I'm currently doing a, a research degree looking into this and my participants tell stories that you would expect to hear that they will be sitting um, in the doctor's room or going with a, a more junior member of staff to go and see a sick patient and all of the comments and questions are directed to their more junior male colleague because how could she possibly be the more senior person because she's a woman um, and again, uh, we all wear the same clothes. Uh, we all wear sort of the same blue scrubs. And so um, visiting teams coming into the ICU, they will assume that you are the bedside nurse um, rather than doctor. And, and, you know, I've done that. You know, this is something that is embedded into all of our brains by um, being given Nurse Barbie uh, toys when we were little. And, that, and it's not in any way to say that being a nurse is, is not an aspirational profession for women to be in, but it's that assumption that because you're a female, you're a nurse. And being spoken over, um, male doctors in giving accounts of uh, members of nursing staff coming up to them and, and checking the, the prescriptions and the plans given to them by female doctors, is this okay? So again, that kind of idea of female authority and knowledge not being uh, thought of as being of similar quality to male authority and knowledge. And I think, again, it just harks back to social norms of women not being seen as those who have knowledge and those who are allowed to know and to, 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 to actually talk about that knowledge with authority. So what we see in medicine is nothing different from what we see in wider society. Um, but what we want, I think, as a society is for the very best people 
to do the jobs that suit them best so that they can then do those jobs to the best of their ability. And if we continue to give female trainees advice that, oh, well, you don't want to do surgery because how will you, you know, mix that with your family? Um, or you don't want to do surgery. You know, it's just not somewhere that women thrive. Um, or, you know, to a man, oh, you know, you want to take shared paternity leave, but isn't your wife the one with the vagina? Um, it, it, we will never change these norms. And as human beings, we will not flourish to the full spectrum of the human experience because men are not being given the opportunity to be to be the caring people that they can be and do things like take time off to look after their family. Uh, and, and women are not being given the ability to potentially uh, demonstrate the full spectrum of their leadership abilities because that's not how we like our women. And it makes me think a little bit about imposter syndrome because that's something that I hear a lot, you know, people really struggling to connect with a sense of confidence and, you know, often feeling like their achievements are by luck rather than by design and they're just waiting to be caught out. And, you know, really interestingly, I, I was reading that imposter syndrome initially was called imposter phenomenon. So the idea that it's an experience that, um, you know, happens within a context. Um, but in the 1960s, some authors kind of tweaked it to, to recoin it as imposter syndrome, which has connotations of, of, you know, disease or disorder and, and something that's very much located within an individual, um, you know, a problem that the individual needs to fix and, and do something about. Whereas I guess we could see how these things like gender bias and, you know, I guess racial prejudice and, and other forms of bias would really create and reinforce that imposter phenomenon. If you are, you know, facing expectations that, or, you know, coming up against expectations that you're not going to be able to achieve what your colleagues are um, because of your gender or race or whatever, and how that can just be so subtly and constantly and insidiously reinforced. I mean, I, I couldn't, could not agree more. And imposter syndrome, I think it's great to talk about because it's such a uh, a widely recognized feeling that people have. But again, that syndrome, putting the locus um, of that uh, phenomenon within the person, when we know that, for example, if we take this to gender, and I know a lot of men feel that they suffer from imposter syndrome too, but as a girl, you are less likely to be called upon than, than your, 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 your boy classmates um, when answering questions in class. There was a study in uh, a medical school in Cardiff, uh, Cardiff Medical School, funnily enough, uh, when they looked at the experience of undergraduates um, on their surgical placements and male trainees were routinely given um, advice that, oh, you're, are you thinking of going into surgery? Well, this is what you should do. But female trainees, every single female trainee was given advice to think about their future family and what specialties they decided to go in. Men were given more opportunity to scrub in and, and you know, help with procedures compared to women. And again, you know, who is feeding this syndrome? Um, and it's all of us by just um, making women frame their own ambitions as being ambitions that have to be tempered by the obligations they have to other people. Um, and, and the fact that women are just intrinsically less suited to high risk, high stress specialties. Um, and it's exactly we condition women to to develop imposter syndrome. So 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 flipping it back to the actual woman as in, well, you need to cure yourself. It's like, well, how about? 
you know, we put in some mitigating strategies to actually stop it being so contagious because I think we, we give it to, to people. And I think being able to name it and, and acknowledge and, and, you know, kind of validate those experiences is a good first step, maybe. <laughs> and how, how do you think um, the pandemic has played into this, the, the role of kind of gender disparity within medicine? Do you Have you seen an, uh, any impact of the pandemic on that? So there have been a couple of uh, robust studies published in both scientific and medical publishing looking at authorship um, of papers in COVID-19 and the, the proportions of female authorship has, has fallen. Uh, and the, the putative uh, reasoning behind this is that women are having to shoulder the burden of domestic work in COVID with limited childcare and all that kind of associated domestic tasks in the way that men are not. And so again, you know, we have these these families that I'm sure both educated parents with, with very uh, high power careers and yet there's a disproportionate share of the, the female of the domestic burden falling to the, the female partner, you know, assuming it's a it's a it's a heteronormative setup. Um, so certainly there has been a reduction in female productivity. I'm sure not because of of desire to, to be less productive, but because women still share the burden of domestic work. Um, and that will only have been amplified during the times of, of coronavirus. Um, again, you know, I don't have, I haven't read anything about this, but you, you do wonder just everything has had to take a step back from COVID. So are women who previously had been benefiting from mentorship and sponsorship and um, all of those kind of positive role modeling that could help move them forward? So much of what we do now is is, is over a screen, like we are talking now, and, and in-person relationships are becoming harder to form. So are, are women perhaps getting less in the way of that, that mentorship and sponsorship that can move their careers forward? I, I don't think we know yet, but I'd be really interested to see how people in, in maybe five years time looking back can can think that that um those relationships flourished or did not flourish because of what we're what we're finding now um so i'm sure there's still a lot of work to be done on the impact of of, of covid and women um you know i'd be really interested to see what the gender pay gap in medicine looks like over the period of, of covid for instance um because if women just have less time uh they're going to be earning less money. Um, so, so yeah, I think there, there are impacts, many of which are related to uh, the fact that childcare in the absence of schooling uh, and domestic duties have had to come to the fore and the fact that they do disproportionately affect women. And that, that interesting research about the number of women publishing having fallen, and I guess this has lots of ramifications, doesn't it? So my understanding in medicine is particularly that, that, that you know, there's a a real constant striving to be producing in those ways in order to have career progression. So not being able to produce as much of, of research and project work can, um, you know, prevent career progression and that then becomes disproportionate, which further kind of reinforces the disparities in leadership. But also that that the science itself is being created without a, a, a woman's lens, a female lens, and we're losing out as a society on not only the skill of women scientists and women medics producing the work, but also that 
that lens through which the work is done. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's just always this idea when we're looking at quantitative sort of positivist research that it is completely objective and the research question is completely objective and the gathering and the analysis of data is completely objective. And we know that's not the case. And you know, as a qualitative researcher, you know, embedding yourself and your identity um, and your views and your, just positioning yourself with respect to your research question is so essential to what we do in qualitative research. But I think quantitative research prides itself in its objectivity, but that's not the case. And so exactly like you say, if a whole segment of the scientific community is not involved in setting priorities and setting research questions and actually the doing of the research, you are missing out on that viewpoint. And I think the problem with quantitative positivist research is that its objectivity allows it to continue in this very, very um, potentially biased way, but it can always just sit up and be like, but I'm objective. Just as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the constant emotional labour that women need to do in to function at, at work in terms of navigating um, the, this bias um, and as well as shouldering more of the domestic burden um, that that I guess I have a sense of that feeding into exhaustion and you know potential disengagement um, you know what how how do women continue with this work and this extremely particularly in your field where you know it's it's a high you know being able to have all your cognitive faculties um to hand in really critical situations is is so key um but potentially with little respite from that if if even the the um you know negotiations in the in the coffee room or back home you know, it's oh, something I, I sort of observe, particularly in our in our female senior nursing staff, um, because again, I think when you look at that kind of relationship between doctors and nurses, medicine being traditionally a masculine profession, in the sense initially it was almost entirely men because women couldn't get medical licences, and then it was one that very much valorises masculine personality traits, um, and is associated with you know intervention and procedures, whereas nursing being very sort of associated with feminine traits of caring and the, the giving of, of love as a therapeutic uh, intervention. Um, and many of our more senior nurses are female in the way that they have to spend exactly what you say that that emotional labour placating other people's strops. You know, somebody can walk onto the unit and be like, oh, I wanted that drain out in that patient last week and no one's taking it out. And yes, this has all been documented incorrectly. And they can't just turn around and be like, take rescue elsewhere, boss. It has to be really sorry about that. Don't worry, I'll have a word. And, I'll just, and just, you know, pouring oil and everybody else's troubled waters and then having, you know, a newly qualified nurse who's really struggling come into their office and having to provide, um, which they do gladly and they see it as part of their role, but the emotional support for them maybe doing phone conversations with people who are uh, thinking about coming back to work after a period of ill health, who may be very upset and anxious and having to provide the emotional support to them, whilst also um, doing clinical work, which is which is very demanding. Um, and I think the, particularly for uh, nursing staff, because I think nursing carries with it a huge amount of emotional labour, just intrinsic to the role. Um, if you're in a senior leadership position, you have to uh, as a nurse, demonstrate those 
that leadership in a very sort of communal way where you're being really warm and you're being really sympathetic and you're being very kind um, in a way that I think must really take it out of you. So just kind of coming to the end, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we've been thinking about the challenges of of the pandemic um, and I guess, you know, life in the NHS was hard at times before we heard of COVID and, and you know, these what's you know, happened in the last couple of years and, and potentially what we face going forward. Um, I wanted to ask you what keeps you going in this work? Um, I've alluded to it several times already, but I just have such an amazing team at work. I feel I've always got somebody that I can just have a two or three minute conversation with during the day about, oh my goodness. Oh. And I like to feel that, that you know, there's, that people can have the same kind of conversation with me, but having colleagues that you can really be yourself with. And I've got probably two or three consultant colleagues who I feel that I can be really honestly, authentically myself with um, as one of them who is probably, you know, the person I speak to most, he's, he sort of says, did I sign up for that though, Rosie? And I was like, well, you didn't sign up for it, but sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to hear me moaning again. And it's great because, you know, it's, it's a really negative thing to do, to, to bitch about people, to, to just malignantly moan nonstop, but to have a friend who is also a colleague who understands what you're talking about, who knows that you are just sounding off um, and who gives you the permission to do that. And then who tells you not just what you want to hear, but sometimes what you need to hear, which can be you know very, very helpful, even though it's not always easy, but also you just know that they've got your back. Because I think it is one of these things that, again, you know, you you will know far more than me as a as a psychologist. Um, there's something about that self identity we have as healthcare workers that I think is really difficult for people who haven't been in that in that profession to necessarily understand. And especially with COVID, it's been such a unique experience to find somebody out with our immediate circle who really understands what it was like. I think would be really hard. And so for me having a group of, of medical and nursing colleagues who were there, who get it, um, who know me and, you know, all my flaws and and weaknesses, but are happy to accept me despite that and are happy for me to to unload my woes um, and hopefully feel that they can, they can do the same uh, with me. Uh, I mean, as I say, if I worked in a workplace where I didn't have that, I don't know how I could continue because I really enjoy the practice of intensive care medicine, but it is hard. And this last 21 months has been particularly hard for all the reasons that we've discussed. And um, I think, you know, you build a team in peacetime and you rely on it in battle. And I know that there's a lot of controversy about using military um, metaphors uh, in medicine, but I think in COVID it kind of has felt like that. Um, and, and to know that I've got my colleagues around me and that we've all got each other's backs and will support each other um, is the one thing that I think, yeah, I can keep doing this for another another 15 years till I retire. That sense of really authentic connection and shared values and shared experience, like, yeah, you found your tribe and, and you've kind of, yeah, got each other's backs. Yeah. And I, I also wondered whether a sense of humour is something that kind of keeps you going and is something that forms part of that. Yeah, and again, sense of humour is really interesting, isn't it? Because it can become sometimes too dark to the point where it almost becomes cruel. Uh, but I think finding the absurd in the everyday 
is uh, probably number one survival tactic for the NHS, isn't it? <laughs> so I think if your sense <laughs> yeah. of humour is finding the absurd in the everyday, then that is something that's going to get you through. And I wanted to ask you on that note about um, something that's um, made international headlines for you. <laughs> um, when you showed an ophthalmologist um, a picture of an eye. <laughs> It looked like and an it eye. It else. looked like an eye <laughs> from a distance. It was not an eye. It was terrible. And it was one of our ophthalmologists who had been with us through COVID. As I was saying, we had doctors redeployed to us. We had two ophthalmologists come to ICU and it's a very, very different environment. But they were fantastic and they just threw themselves in there and they were doing the daily reviews and they were they were they were great. Um and they also did some quality improvement work helping eye care health of patients on ventilators because they, they, they lose the ability to blink when they're sedated and they can get terrible corneal problems that can be sort of lifelong visually limiting if they if they then go on to survive ICU so it's a really important thing to do then um, he'd come to see another patient who'd come in uh, with a condition which can also be sight threatening and the guideline for treatment of that of that was uh, beside him and, and I just pointed that is that is that the worst case scenario for the eye and he just kind of looked at me because it, it didn't sound like I was joking because I wasn't joking but it wasn't an eye it was the tip of a penis and it was a black and white poor quality <laughs> photocopy and that's my excuse but um but one of the other uh, doctors in training in the room just went Rosie that's not an eye and I'm like oh. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I I hunted Twitter for the for the picture. <laughs> right, a poor quality photocopy in black and white. It could look like an extremely swollen eye, but in retrospect, I should have really looked closer. Um, but yeah, I'd done that thing, hadn't I? Was it top down association or something? That ophthalmologist sitting beside a picture. It's got to be an eye, <laughs> but but no, it could also be uh, genitals. You shouldn't always do that kind of association. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, Take good care.